If you have a copy of God's Word, I invite you to turn with me to Luke chapter 15 this morning. Luke chapter 15. As we continue to make our way through Luke's gospel, we arrive this morning at one of the most famous passages in all the Bible. And we want to set the stage for those verses by simply reading the first three verses of the chapter and getting in our minds the context for what Jesus is about to say. Luke says to us, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, that is, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. Now, from the outset, we are reminded not only of who Jesus is, but why he came. Gathered around him were tax collectors and sinners. Now, it's not as if there are some people who are sinners and some people who are not sinners, at least in terms of the biblical categories. But it's those, there are those who are known for their sin. They have a reputation for their sinfulness. They are notorious for their wickedness. That's what Luke is referring to here. That's what the Pharisees and the scribes are referring to here. Then there are those that were tax collectors. These were fellow Jews who betrayed their countrymen to the Romans. They worked for the Romans collecting taxes and Rome allowed them not only to take what was required for Caesar but to take extra to pay for themselves as well. But there was no limit on how much extra they could take. So they could decide if they wanted a blue collar income or a white collar CEO income by the amount of taxes that were collected and that collection was enforced by Roman soldiers. So they were the Benedict Arnolds of Israel and not well-liked by anyone in that country. Tax collectors and sinners, these are the people that came to Jesus, and Jesus was glad to have them. He welcomed them to himself, but he was also criticized for it. You see, there were not only people in Jesus' day that were known for their sin, but there were also people in Jesus' day who were known for their righteousness. The Pharisees and the scribes were known for their meticulous keeping of God's law. In fact, they not only strived for righteousness, but they strived to keep away from sinners. They would cross the road rather than walk past a, a sinner. They would avert their eyes rather than make eye contact with those they deemed to be sinful people. But the problem with the scribes and the Pharisees is that by and large, their righteousness was hollow. It was fake. It wasn't real because their righteousness did not come from faith in God and a genuine repentance of their sin. It was an assumed righteousness from an ignored sin. So, Luke says, in light of these things, Jesus told them a parable. Now, when I was younger, I was told a parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meeting. And that's a pretty good starting place, but it's not quite all there is. Because we might be tempted to think of, of Jesus' parables as something like cute stories or the Christian version of Aesop's fables. But as one man, Dr. Albert Moeller says, the parables are more like spiritual hand grenades. See, within the context of a parable, Jesus is able to draw in an audience, to draw in their attention with a story, but then allow 
the truth of God to drop like a penny, and the results are often explosive. People are offended when Jesus tells parables. Uh, people get angry when Jesus tells parables because he defies their expectations and reveals their sinful ways. Notice also that Luke doesn't say that Jesus told three parables to them. He told them this parable. It's singular. It's one. But it's a parable made up of three stories. But Luke is telling us that we shouldn't just read each of these stories in isolation, that they are meant to come together to form one central teaching, one parable that Jesus is saying. So as we look at all three of these stories this morning, what we'll see is the same themes coming up over and over again, and yet they're also building to a climax as well, a main point that Jesus is wanting the scribes and the Pharisees and even the sinners and tax collectors to understand. In each of these teachings, we see something is lost, that something is found, and there is great rejoicing as a result. And this three-story parable is important for us today for at least two reasons. First of all, it is important because it is Jesus' defense of his ministry. He is saying, here's why I have come, and I've come and ministered in ways that you do not expect, dear Pharisees and scribes. But secondly, this parable is important because it offers to us an invitation. What we will see is that we are lost and we need to be found. Jesus is searching, will we respond to him? Will we be found by him? Furthermore, as God's people here today, those who have been found, those who have been saved from our sins, those who are Christ's disciples, how will we respond to Jesus' search and rejoicing in the finding of sinners? Will we stand back like the Pharisees, unwilling to engage in Jesus' mission, wanting to avoid sinners, or will we join in the work of Christ, searching for that which is lost and rejoicing when it is found? So let's look to the, see this parable this morning that Jesus told so many years ago but is so relevant for us today. And in doing so, we first need to see the caring shepherd. The caring shepherd. Jesus says, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Shepherding was a common practice in the, the farming reality of Israel society back then, but that imagery of sheep and shepherding goes beyond just day-to-day -day farming. In fact, throughout the Old Testament, the imagery of, of a shepherd was used to describe the spiritual leaders of Israel, not least of which God himself. Almost all of us know Psalm 23, which begins, The Lord is my shepherd. So think about the picture that Jesus gives here. It begins with this lost sheep. Now, for all of their cuteness, sheep are actually pretty helpless. Uh, part of their helplessness comes from their stupidity. Now, that doesn't sound nice, but there's no nice way to put it. Sheep are stupid. Uh, scientists have come up with this metric of measuring an animal's intelligence. And it's based on the ratio of brain weight to body size. So, 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 so what does your brain weigh? How heavy is it? How big is it compared to the rest of your body? And sheep are at the bottom of the scale when it comes to animals. They are stupid. 
Their lack of intelligence can be seen in their behavior as well. They, they do not know how to find food and water on their own. Even though they will have grazed in a field that they have been led to, if that, even though that field is reduced to hardly anything, just, uh, just uh, nasty little bits of leftover grass and their own feces, they will keep eating and eating and eating, making themselves sick. When a predator attacks, they don't know how to run for safety. They just get scared and run in circles around and around and around, making themselves even easier prey. Beyond that, they have no physical defense. Sheep have no teeth or claws with which to defend themselves, so they are easy pickings. They are a happy meal, as it were, for predators, as one person has called them. Now, the shepherd knows all of this. He knows all this, so that is why he goes after the sheep when it becomes lost. And when he finds it, notice he doesn't beat it for being lost. He doesn't doesn't scold it for being stupid or even make it walk home. He picks it up and carries it on his shoulders and cares for the sheep after its ordeal. More than that, when he arrives at home, he calls for all of his friends to come together and rejoice with him because he found the sheep. Now, at this point, people might be scratching their heads and listening to the parable and say, okay, we get it. In 99, he lost one. It's a, it, it, good that he found it, but it's just a sheep. What, what's all the rejoicing for? And Jesus makes this point. In the same way, the shepherd is overjoyed when he finds his sheep. So there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. You see, before him, are all of these so-called righteous people in Israel who don't even want to look at a sinner. But Jesus says heaven takes notice when the sinner is saved. At the same time, those who believe themselves to be righteous and therefore in their mind have no need of repentance, heaven is not rejoicing over them. Heaven is not rejoicing in the meticulous way they go about keeping the law and in serving God and seeking to be righteous in Israel because they they do not have a real righteousness. They do not have a righteousness that is driven by acknowledging the care of their shepherd. Jesus says that he has come as one caring for lost sheep who desperately need God because they cannot fend for themselves. But more than that, he says he searches out for those who are lost. This is what we see when Jesus tells us about the searching woman. The searching woman. This is the second thing we see. The second story from Jesus' parable. The story of the searching woman. Jesus says, like this shepherd who goes after the lost sheep, what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it. And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Verse 10, Just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Now, if you're like me, you've probably lost something in your lifetime, maybe even in recent days. might have been a telephone, might have been a remote control, might have been a set of car keys, uh, might have been something even more valuable than that. The other day, a couple weeks ago, uh, I was dropping Elizabeth, my youngest, off at daycare. I was on my way home, and I realized I was not sitting on my wallet. And considering I had grabbed the pair of pants that I took off the night before and had on, my wallet should have still been in there. My pocket knife was still in there. The belt was still threaded through when I put them on. Where was my wallet? And so I came home and a bit of a, 
a bit of a concerned mood. What, where was this wallet at? And so I began kind of looking the usual places. I would, I would drop it, and it's nowhere to be found. And then I kind of enter into full panic mode. Every light in the house goes on. Couch cushions are being uh, thrown across the room. I'm down on my hands and knees looking under flaps and, and, and moving kids' toys out of the way. Where was that wallet? I was not going to be happy. I was not going to feel secure until that thing was found. And yes, it's where it should be right this morning. I did indeed find it. And I imagine that that kind of sense of panic, that sense of urgency and diligence is the same thing that Jesus is getting at here in this parable, this story. We, we don't really know much about this woman, whether she's young or old, whether she's married or widowed. We don't even know what this money represents or why it is so significant to her. And frankly, none of that's important. Jesus has told us what is important. Here is a woman who has these 10 coins and she has lost one of them. They are important to her. They actually weren't worth that much, about a day's wage. So about 10 days wage. But if that was all she had, then it would have been desperately important for her to find these things. And so she is looking. She is sweeping every nook and cranny. You, you, you can imagine. I mean, this is, a, this is a first century Jewish house. It may only have one room. There's not a whole lot in there. But she gets the broom out and she's in the corners trying to, to dig through and, and get all the dust out of there because maybe the, the coin has slept, slipped in there. She, she gets the oil lamp and she's going, casting light into every shadow, driving away the darkness, thinking maybe, maybe the, the coin has fallen here where I cannot see it. Eventually she finds that coin and great is her rejoicing. In fact, such is her joy that like the shepherd, she goes and she gathers her friends together that they might rejoice with her. And here again, Jesus is seeking to defend himself, to explain himself to the scribes and the Pharisees about why it would be that he would be glad to sit down with tax collectors and sinners. Here's a picture of Christ himself who diligently seeks out the lost that they might be found. It is a reminder also of the rejoicing that takes place when they're found. You know, Jesus doesn't just kind of sit and wait for us to come to him. Jesus is seeking us out even today. He is not saying, oh, I wish they would come, I wish they would come. No, He is coming after us. And sometimes it's only years later we're able to look back and say and see with clarity all the ways that God was moving to make Himself known to us, but He is not content to sit back and allow us to be lost. Jesus says in verse 10, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Think about that. What makes the angels happy? Well, te television and movies might, might give you lots of ideas about what makes angels happy, and uh, probably all of it is wrong. Okay, But Jesus here makes clear, if you want to create a smile on the face of an angel in heaven, it will be through a sinner turning to faith in God. I heard someone say, well, I can't, imagine, uh, I can't imagine anything in heaven besides God himself causing the angels to rejoice. All right, fair enough. But understand, how is a sinner saved? Not by their own righteousness, but by looking to God who forgives. Therefore, it is to the glory of God that a sinner repents, and therefore why the angels in heaven rejoice. 
Jesus has told us about the caring shepherd and about the searching woman. But now in this third story, he gives a much more involved, much more detailed final part of the parable. And this is the part that is perhaps the most well-known. It is often called something like the parable of the lost son or the prodigal son. But what's interesting, though, is that really that, that, that's a shame. It, it shouldn't be called either of those things because if you notice, uh, we haven't read it yet, but if you know it, looking back, who was, the main, who was the main character in each of these parables? It wasn't the sheep. It wasn't the coin. It was the shepherd and the woman. The parable is about them. Likewise, the parable here is not about the lost son, but about the father who goes looking for that son. And so in different translations, you will see the little subheading over this, uh, this passage of Scripture. The scripture says something like the parable of the waiting father. Or in one African translation, it's the parable of the joyous father. But perhaps best of all, from many German editions, comes this label, the parable of the gracious father. And that's what I want us to see this morning from this final part of the parable. We need to see the gracious father. The gracious Father. In verse 11, Jesus says, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Now, inheritance law in Judaism in ancient Israel said that the first son, the firstborn son, would receive double of anything else that the other children had. So once it was divided up, you basically added an extra kid in there, and the oldest son got double. There was a reason for that. Uh, part of it was the way in which the inheritance worked in Israel. Uh, you would have a, a portion of land given to a specific family, and what they did not want to have happen was that land to be broken up and divided among all of the children. They wanted the homestead, as it were, to stay together in that family to be consistent across generations. And so this would have allowed that oldest son to have the resources to do that. And normally that inheritance would be received by the child after the father passed away. But for whatever reason, the younger, the younger of the two sons feels contempt for his father. You say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, we know that because, again... To, to say to a father, I don't want to wait until you die to receive what's coming to me. I want it now is to essentially say to the father, I wish you were dead. I wish you were out of the picture so I could go on with my own life. I know I'm not getting the huge thing. I'm not going to be responsible for all the land. I want to go now and make my way in the world. I don't want to wait till you're gone. I just, I just wish you would be dead now. I wish you would die so I could have my money and I could go off and be my own man. And frankly, at this point in the culture of the day, the father himself, or he could have called for his servants, could have had that younger son beaten, throw out of the, the, the gates of the house, and, and completely stripped him of any, of any sonship that he had, and no one would have been surprised. In fact, some may have applauded that move by the father. But that's not what happens. The father gives the younger son exactly what he wants. He divides up whatever wealth was his at that time and would have been the son's and gives it to him. Jesus says that after that, verse 13, not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. 
and he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. Rather than this new, exciting life the son wants to start, he squanders all of his inheritance in what Jesus calls reckless living. In fact, this is where that title prodigal son comes from. Prodigal is just Latin for wasteful, and that's exactly what he is. He's a son that wastes the resources, the inheritance that he's been given by his father. And unfortunately, he does that in a faraway land where then a famine strikes. So food is scarce and people are not, not easily willing to give up the little that they have. So here is, this, here is this young man far from home with no money in a land where food was scarce. So what does he do? Probably for the first time in his life, he gets a paycheck. He hires himself out at a job feeding the pigs. But notice the pay was so poor, the pay was so poor that even the pig slopped looked better than what he had to him. He still didn't have enough to eat even a simple meal. Now, now all of that may sound bad enough for us at this point, but you have to stop and remember what is the context in which Jesus is teaching this. It's in the context of ancient Israel. That means this young boy was a Jew. So let's think back through where this guy has gotten himself. Here is a A young guy who, we're told, goes to a far-off country. In other words, he's left the promised land of Israel. He's disobeyed God's command to honor his father by asking for him to be dead and for having his inheritance now. More than that, he finds himself now in a job that requires him to associate with an animal that God declared unclean. I mean, we, we, most of us anyway, I just heard somebody talk about this morning about having bacon-wrapped steak. And it's very hard to imagine much of anything that bacon does not make better. But for the Jews, it was off-limits. It was forbidden. You did not touch a pig. You didn't go near it. To even be close, you would have become ritually unclean. Notice that this, this guy does not, even, does not even have to work with them. He comes to envy the pigs. It's hard to imagine, but the pig was so despised in Israel, that is what, that is what they used as a label for their, the worst of the enemies, the people they had it. They, they, they called them pigs, swine, Gentile swine. And here this guy is serving this unclean animal, this epitome of wickedness and uncleanness, even envying it. Here is this once good Jewish boy, far, far from God's plan and his father's home. And it would have probably even been shocking to the scribes and Pharisees who were listening to this story. But stop and think about the others that might have been listening to this story, the sinners and the tax collectors who could, who could relate to this young man. For what we see here is not something uncommon. The details might be vastly different, but what we have in Jesus' words here is simply a description of the pattern of sin that most of us have experienced in our life. We know that sin is deceitful, sin is seductive, but the fruit of sin's promise never satisfies. It looks good at the beginning, but once we bite into what sin offers, we realize it is rotten to the core. It is not what we hoped for. It is not what we longed for. 
But more than that, once we begin to excuse and rationalize behavior that we know is wrong, it leads to more behavior that we know it's wrong. Say yes to small sins, and it becomes easier to say yes to big sins. Eventually, we find ourselves covered in the pig slop of life, looking around confused and sorrowful and wondering how in the world we ever got ourselves in this kind of a mess. But notice what happens to this young man in verse 17. Jesus says, In the midst of his misery, he came to himself. And he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. The youngest son comes to himself in the words of Jesus. In other words, he has this moment of clarity about his situation. This was not bad circumstances. This was not bad luck or fate. He put himself here. He is here experiencing the sorrow because of his own sin. He is not a victim. He is the one who made these choices for himself. And so he intends to beg mercy from his father. He intends to confess his sin, saying two things. The first part is this. He wants to express his repentance before his father. To acknowledge that he has sinned not only against him, but against heaven itself and what he has done. But secondly, he does not want to ask for the restoration of his place in the family. He simply wants to live as a hired servant in the father's house. In the midst of this sorrow, he remembers his father's generosity and how well paid and provided for even the servants are in his house. And he thinks, oh, if I could just be a slave in the house of my father, not even a son, then I would be far better off than I am here. And so he makes this plan. He leaves behind the pigs and he heads home. Now at this point, again, the scribes and the Pharisees may have been nodding their head and saying, see, see where sin leads? See where wickedness gets you? This younger son deserved everything that he got. But Jesus isn't done with the story yet. Notice what he says in verse 20. He arose and came to his father. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And bring a ring on his, put a, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. Now, if we could have been standing with Jesus at this point, I'm almost certain that, again, there would be gaping mouths and bulging eyes on the faces of the scribes and the Pharisees. They would not have even looked the sun in his eyes, let alone spent time gazing out into the fields longing for his return. But more than that, they never would have run. I mean, today we have all kinds of sporting and athletic events and everything else, but it would have been unseemly for a man of the father's age in the ancient Middle East to be running anywhere. It was scandalous for them to hear of this man's behavior. And notice the restoration that comes. He, he does not even let the son get out the words, let me just be a slave. He cuts him off. He's too excited to have him home. So he says, in the midst of... the 
the, the, the stink of his tattered clothes and pig feces. He is embracing him. He is kissing him on the face. And he says, come on, put some good clothes and bring the best robe. What robe would that have been? It would have been the father's own robe. Bring the best robe and, and put shoes on his naked, battered feet from this long journey. Put, put a, a ring on his hand, the sign of his sonship, of his place in the family. The father is not satisfied unless there is a full reclamation of his wayward son. And like the shepherd and the woman, he is ready to share his joy with others. He says, bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. It's an amazing, even prodigal, wasteful display of grace from the father in the eyes of the scribes and the Pharisees. But remember what Jesus said in verse 11. This is not a parable about a lost son. This is a parable of a gracious father with two sons. Verse 25. Now his older son was in the field. As he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he was received him back safe and sound. But he was angry. And refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed a fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you were always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Again, Al Mohler wisely comments that grace is offensive to those who do not think they need it. We can rightly rejoice in the return of the younger son, but we should also grieve at the lostness of the older son because the older son doesn't realize he's lost. He hears the party and is disgusted to think that his father has done all of this for this wayward brother. In fact, he can't even call, bring himself to call him brother. What does he say? This son of yours has come home. He's wasted your money in wickedness, and this is how you respond? But notice the father's grace has not been completely spent on the younger son. There is still grace for the older son as well. He says, he says son, come on. Let's join the party. You're, all, you're always with me. All that I have is yours, but your son was, your, your brother was, was lost and his family was dead, but now he's alive. See, so the problem is that the older son has been consumed with serving and obeying. But there's no joy. There's, there's no joy at the return of the younger brother. If he was truly the father's son, he should have been crying and dancing and hugging on his brother. So here is the sad twist. Here is the depressing irony. Though one son saw his sin and believed himself only worthy to be a slave, the other son never saw his sin and never truly lived as a son but as a slave. The older son thinks he's serving the father, but he wasn't. He's only serving himself, trying to justify his place in the family. And Jesus' point is this. No one is ever saved by religious activity. No one is ever saved by the good works that they do, but by faith alone in God. And it's here that Jesus has put out the spiritual hand grenade. He is 
pulled out the pen, and now it goes off. For Jesus is telling this parable, looking into the eyes of many older brothers. He is challenging the scribes and the Pharisees to not only accept with rejoicement the salvation of these tax collectors and sinners, but to stop and see their own sin. To see their own need of repentance and forgiveness and a gracious Father who will forgive them. And this is how Jesus' parable ends. With this open invitation of grace and forgiveness. Jesus stands there, as it were, as a true older brother, one who goes out and searches for the lost and wayward younger son and who rejoices when they are found. That's his whole mission, to seek and to save the lost. This is what the Pharisees and the scribes should have done. Rather than take pride in their own works, they should have cried out for God's mercy to save them and then earnestly taught others to do the same. Rather than be angry over sinners coming to God, they should have rejoiced. And Jesus, like the Father, is looking to them and saying, won't you come and rejoice? Won't you come and join in the festivities? Won't you come and join the party and the celebration? Won't you come and take part in the mercy and the forgiveness of a gracious Father? who is willing to forgive your sins. This is the parable that Jesus tells in Luke 15. How should we respond to it this morning? What what, what, what should we do in response to what Jesus said? Three things. First of all, you must look at your heart. You must look at your heart. Jesus' invitation did not end with the Pharisees and the scribes that day. It's still open even this morning. Jesus is still caring and searching for sinners to whom he can show his amazing grace, who he can bring to a gracious Father who will forgive them of their sins. How can he do that? Because remember, even as we prayed this morning, he himself died in our place. He became a curse for us that, that the punishment we deserve might fall on him and we might escape. God's eternal judgment for our sins. Though he was completely righteous, he was counted as the most wicked of men under God's wrath for us. Today, today, look at your heart and determine who you are before God. Are you that younger son, wayward, living however he wants, trying to make a name for himself, in need of coming to a gracious father who is willing to forgive? Are you an older brother? Someone committed to God and to His church, but in reality, despises sinners because you've not yet come to see yourself as a sinner. You believe that it is by your righteous deeds, by your obedience and your faithfulness, that you will be saved. When really, really you need to repent just like the younger brother. We need to look into our hearts and see, are we lost and in need of being found. If you are this morning, then look to Jesus. Believe that He is your Savior, and you will be saved. Secondly, we not only need to look to our hearts, but we need to seek the lost. We need to seek the lost. Edmund Clowney, who was a uh, seminary professor who's now gone to be with the Lord, once told the, the true story of a young man who served in the Vietnam War. The family received notice that after one battle, this son was classified as MIA, missing in action. The family was grieved and kept looking for more information, was hoping for an update or even the body to be found and returned home, and it never came. So the man's older brother, Donald Dawson from Milwaukee, flew to Vietnam to look for the brother himself. 
a great risk to his own life. Sometimes alone through the rice paddies, sometimes accompanying armed U.S. patrols, Dawson was determined in his search to find his lost brother. If we are God's people, so often we expect lost people just to come to us. We expect God just to put people in our path so that we have to do very little in terms of evangelizing and, and spreading the gospel of Christ. But that's not the pattern of God. That's not the pattern of Jesus. You, you were not saved by, hack, by happenstance. Christ was seeking after you. Again, we will, we will see in chapter 19, Jesus says plainly, I came not just to save, I came to seek and to save the lost. And he gives that same mission to us, his people. We are called to go after those who we know to be lost. To actively pursue them and share the love of a gracious father who is willing to forgive. That mission calls for determination. That mission calls for sacrifice. So what is your game plan, Christian? If, if you are one who has embraced Christ, you've received forgiveness, your, your mission now is to go, to seek, and to point people to Jesus who can save. What is your game plan for doing that? What is your strategy? How will you seek out lost people to tell them of Christ? It is not sufficient to pray, God, give me an opportunity. That's a good starting place, but it's not sufficient. Seek after the lost just as Jesus sought after you. Finally, Finally, we need to rejoice with God. We need to rejoice with God. God's people have an endless supply of reasons in which to rejoice, but here is the greatest cause, the salvation of a sinner, the finding of one who is lost. Jesus says the angels, even heaven itself, stops and takes notice when someone comes to themselves by the regenerating work of the Spirit, sees their need of Christ, and trusts Him to be saved. One person has said it is the evidence of a true gospel church that we rejoice when a sinner is saved. Loved ones, it is, it is far too easy to get comfortable in church. It is far too easy to forget that we needed a gracious Father, that we needed mercy, that we needed someone to seek after us. And it's very easy to become, become intro, not introverted, but looking in at ourselves What's best for us as a church community? What's easiest for us? And what kind of classes are best for us? But that, that, that's not the, the long-term focus that we've been called to. We've been given this great commandment as a commission to go and make disciples. That means that, that the thing that should drive us is not that I had a really good discussion today in Sunday school. Great, rejoice in that. But more, 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 more glorious is the salvation of a sinner either through your evangelism or through someone else's. That is what should cause our hearts to leap with joy. The question is, is that where we're at? Have, have we become hardened and, and have we begun to slowly take on that role of the older brother who simply despises sinners and cannot see that the greatest joy in this life is seeing someone come to know Christ? On these verses, J.C. Ryle says, Let the person who is afraid to repent consider well these verses we are now looking at and be afraid no more. There is nothing on God's part to justify our fears. An open door is set before you. A free pardon awaits you. If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let the person who is ashamed to repent consider these verses and cast those shames aside. 
Though the world mocks and jests at your repentance, while man is mocking, angels are rejoicing. The very change which calls sinners foolishness is a change which fills heaven with joy. Have you repented? That is, after all, the spiritual question which concerns us. What shall it profit us to know God's love if we do not use it? If you know these things, happy are you if you do them. This morning, if you have not ever trusted in Christ, trust in Him. And as God's people, may we not only continue to live a life of dependent, humble repentance on God's mercy, but may we rejoice in and help others do the same. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus' words here. They are so instructive to us. But God, more than that, they are so comforting and so encouraging. You are not a God that is stingy with grace. You are not a God who stands far off from sinners. Lord, you have proven that through your Son, Jesus Christ, who took on flesh and dwelt in our midst. He lived and ate and tolerated sinners all the days of his life. And he did it with great love and compassion, wanting them to come and see him for who he was, the Savior of the world. Father, may that that mindset well up within our hearts as well. May your spirit, as he transforms us into the likeness of Christ, make us to be so intolerant of our own sin, but so merciful and patient with the sin of others, knowing they need to hear of a gracious God who sent a willing son to die in place of sinners that they might be saved. Lord, give us this spirit of Christ. Give us this this desire to care for and to search after and to be gracious towards sinners even as you are and have been with us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.